Good evening, everybody. Um, I've been a Christian for about 22 years, but I confess that I'm not a prolific reader of the Bible. Um, the time that I've spent reading the book of Jeremiah, you could probably count in hours and minutes. I might be able to take you through the Gospels, or even to give you a rundown on some of Paul's letters, or perhaps tell you about some of the highlights of God's early dealings with his people in Genesis and Exodus. But Jeremiah, not so much. Before embarking on this, Jeremiah to me would have been an intimidating, depressing, and hard-to-follow mixture of history, prophecy, and laments, the reading of which, if I'm honest, has probably not moved me one step forward in my Christian journey. So I just wanted to let you know that this was my starting point. It might also help you to understand my initial reaction when I got the nod from Christoph to say, Dan, you're up for Jeremiah 37 to 44. So that's just the eight chapters then, Christoph of this scary book that I've hardly been able to bring myself to read, uh, let alone preach on. So with all of this in mind, let's just take a moment um, to ask God to help all of us uh, over the next 25 minutes or so before we go any further. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. And we thank you that all scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness. Lord, this is a difficult section of your word. Help us be humble and teachable tonight and show us the things that we need to learn from you. Amen. We're going to try and achieve three things tonight. Firstly, we're going to try and cover the story. We'll have a run-through from beginning to end. The second thing is we're going to pause briefly midway through and look at one particular incident in a little more detail. It's chapter 38 that David read. There are different people in our story respond to God's message in different ways. And we're going to see if there's something that we can learn from them. And finally, a personal reflection on how we deal with what, for me, is the elephant in the room, the room of this story. How do we cope? How do I cope when we meet suffering, judgment, and death in God's Word? I would really encourage you to try and take a little bit of time, maybe about half an hour, to read through chapters 37 to 44 at your leisure. When you get into it, it's actually a riveting read. There's an awful lot going on. It's very, very dramatic, and it's fast-paced. In fact, it's the sort of thing that you could imagine a director like Ridley Scott making into an epic film a la Gladiator. But he might not, because when you look at it a bit more closely, here there aren't really any heroes. Nothing good happens, and there certainly isn't a happy ending. It's 588 BC where we join it in chapter 37, and on the throne is Zedekiah. He's a puppet king, and he's been put there by the Babylonians. And there's a siege on in the city of Jerusalem. 
the Babylonians have had it surrounded for almost two years. The former king, Jehoiachin, has already been humbled and taken off into exile. Jeremiah has consistently brought a message of judgment to the royal line of God's people. But there has been no repentance, no turning away from idol worship and sin and back into the arm of God. The message has been consistently preached and it's been consistently ignored. And now it looks that this is the moment where God's judgment will finally come crashing down on the city of Jerusalem. With hope failing, we find King Zedekiah desperately scarring the horizon. He hears that the Egyptian army is rising up in an attitude to threaten the Babylonians. And he thinks, maybe, maybe God really means to let him off the hook and the Egyptians are actually coming to his rescue. So Jeremiah, formerly cast aside, is now of use again. And in verse 3, the king comes to him and he says, Please pray to the Lord your God for us. This is the Jewish king. And he says, Please pray to your God, not my God or ours. Well, Jeremiah does not give the desired response. He says that the Egyptians are going to turn tail and they're going to run. Verse 80 says that the Babylonians are going to return. They will capture the city and they're going to burn it down. And in verse 10, just in case he hadn't got the message, even if you were to defeat the entire Babylonian army who is attacking you and only wounded men were left in their tents, well, they would come out and they would burn this city down. Well, temporarily the Babylonians do withdraw and Jeremiah seizes the opportunity to try and nip out of the city and take care of a little bit of business. There were some issues relating to a share of property that he had in the territory of Benjamin, and he thought that this would be a good time to leave Jerusalem and go and sort it out. Unsurprisingly, he stopped by the soldiers at the city gate. This is the doomsday prophet. This is the guy that has been going around talking up their enemies and saying that they are going to be victorious. They were sure that he was off to turn traitor, to try and defect. So Jeremiah, he protests that this is not what he had in mind. But his protestations fall on deaf ears. He's taken aside, he's arrested, he's beaten up, and he's thrown into a dungeon. He then, now um, suffering greatly and half-starved, is found out again by Zedekiah. And Zedekiah thinks that if he asks the question enough times, then maybe God is going to change his mind. No, Jeremiah says, you are going to be handed over to the Babylonians. But Jeremiah is a survivor, and he takes this opportunity to reason with the king to try and save his own life. He says, I haven't done anything wrong. You're guilty of shooting the messenger. And if you send me back into that dungeon, I'm going to die there. Well, Zedekiah is going to prove himself as the king of indecision. And he keeps him arrested. But it is in the more generous surroundings of the court of the guards, where at least Jeremiah stays alive, having bread to eat. In chapter 38, things do not get 
any better for Jeremiah. The officials under Zedekiah, the top civil servants of the day, do not have surrender on their agenda. With little thoughts of those under their care, they are going to stick it out regardless in the city. And they'd had enough of Jeremiah. His message was undermining their will. Jeremiah was saying that whoever stays in this city will die by sword, famine, or plague. Whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. He's advocating surrender and desertion. And they take it to the king that this man should be put to death. The king, rescuing him one minute, now swings against Jeremiah again. And he offers this pathetic response. It is a weak king who in verse 30, uh, chapter 38, verse 5 says, I can do nothing to oppose you. And with that, Jeremiah is thrown into the bottom of a dirty cistern, a cistern that should have been filled with water, but this was a city under siege. The water was all gone. All that remained was thick, clawing mud into which Jeremiah was to sink down and die. And there he would have died, uh, but for a man by the name of Ebed-Melech. He's a palace official, and he petitioned the king and condemned the actions of the other officials as wicked. And he went with 30 men to pull the weakened prophet up from the muddy cistern. The 30 men are not all needed to lift the one old man. They are security, an attempt to control, um, sorry, they are security to control any attempt to stop Ebed-Melech. And it looks like they got there just in time. They couldn't just throw down a rope for Jeremiah to grab onto. They had to use worn-out rags as a harness to extricate his limp and failing body. Jeremiah is rescued, and he is returned to his imprisonment in the court of the guards. Above ground, Zedekiah seeks out Jeremiah once more, this time in secret, as he's fearful of the reaction of the officials if he was seen inquiring of God's prophet. He has been incapable of hearing and responding to God's message. He's buried his head in the sand. Having ignored the message previously given, he asks one more time in the hope that God would provide another. He does not. For the final time, Jeremiah lays it on the line in no uncertain terms. Verse 18, God wants you to surrender. If you do, you're going to live. It will go well with you and your people. If you do not surrender, your city will be handed over to the Babylonians. They will burn it down, and you yourselves will not escape from their hands. Surrender and safety. Hold out and burn. Let's just pause uh, for a quick moment here. We've already alluded in this series that maybe we can actually identify with these persecuted people facing exile a little bit more than we think. These are a people living through a time of sweeping change, a time when following the living God was in rapid decline. We've reflected that we live here in Britain at a time when the church is shrinking at an alarming rate. And on Sundays, 
you're much more likely to meet somebody who's heading down into town to do their shopping or up the road to go to the gym at David Lloyd than they would be coming to church. We've wondered about the possibility that we might be living in a time of exile. We've wondered about the possibility that we might actually be living through a time of God's judgment. So let's see if there's anything for us to learn from these folk on how to cope when the pressure is really turned up. It's Joshua who asks, Choose for yourselves this day whom you shall serve. The siege and the awful predicament that the inhabitants of Jerusalem find themselves in leads to personal crisis. The time has come for each individual to act on their fundamental convictions. For the officials, the civil servants, the only thing that they show us is fear. They are afraid of God's message, and they lash out against it. They want to kill the messenger by throwing him into a cistern of mud. If you can't hear the message, well, maybe it won't happen. They only wanted a word from God if it backed up what they wanted to do and the position that they already held. The Pharisees had a similar plan for Jesus. Better for the messenger to die than for all the people to get stirred up. The other option is that chosen by Zedekiah. Just do nothing. Don't make a decision. Don't be obedient to any cause. And we'll see that for him to make no decision was a fateful choice. His interest in the matter is really only self-interest. God or the people he was to serve through his kingship didn't really seem to come into it. Great pressure was put on him from various sources and it sees him do little but fret over his own personal safety. God called Zedekiah to accountability and to action. Repent, surrender, and save yourselves, the people in this city. He did nothing. We need to be careful. Recalcitrant and disobedient people, that's what we're reading about. But the story is not here for us to gleefully note how stupid they were. It's here for our instruction. And we need to read it carefully, sympathetically, open to the idea that we could very well be the Zedekiah or the stubborn officials of our day. If God's message comes knocking at your door, be careful not to shoot it down like the officials or ignore it like Zedekiah. It's much easier to do that than to listen carefully and learn humbly. When the mirror of God's word is raised against our lives, we might not always like what we see. And so we come to the third protagonist, Ebed Melek, probably a man from the Sudan or Ethiopia. Choose this day whom you will serve. Well, Ebed Melek answers this in actions rather than words, and action is a great indicator of a person's disposition. Do you know what he's got? He's got courage. He has the conviction to stand with God's man. He acts on it, petitioning a king. He risks being called a traitor. 
He risks suffering, perhaps sharing Jeremiah's fate. He overcomes personal fear. Courage. He stands with Jeremiah, and later we shall see that because of it, God stands with Ebed-Melech. Courage. It is a noble human trait, but it's also a gift of God in due season. Friends, I look at my own life. I look around our church, locally and nationally, and I don't see a whole lot of courage. If this is going to be our time, a time of exile and trial and testing, maybe we need to be praying for more and more wisdom and courage because it's only a matter of time before all of us are going to have to make some difficult choices to act on our convictions and to choose this day whom we will serve. So it's back to our story, and and it is hard to listen to. The sword of judgment finally does fall. As the last morsel of food is gone, the walls of Jerusalem are broken and breached. The king who took no action all this time now watches helpless as his subjects are killed, their homes are burned, the city and the temple are smashed to bits. It's every man for himself, and in the middle of the chaos... Zedekiah gathers his close family, his nobles, and his soldiers, and he skips out the back door through a hole in the city gates, and he leaves his people to their fate. But now God's judgment and Jeremiah's prophecy see their chilling fulfillment. The Babylonians chase and capture Zedekiah and his escape party across the plains of Jericho. He is brought before King Nebuchadnezzar himself, The last thing that his eyes see before they are taken by his captors is the execution of all of his sons and all of his nobles. Blinded and humiliated, he is taken to Babylon in chains, and we do not hear of him again. Before Jeremiah is discovered and freed by the Babylonians, there is one more dealing for him with Ebed-Melech. God's word to him in chapter 39, verse 16. But I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not be handed over to those you fear. I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but you will escape with your life because you trust me. It is strange that this commander who comes to free Jeremiah attributes the Babylonians' victory to Jeremiah's God. In chapter 40, verse 2, he says, The Lord your God decreed disaster for this place. And now the Lord has brought it about. He has done just as he said he would. Jeremiah finds favor with the Babylonians. In verse 4, the commander says, Today I am freeing you from the chains on your wrists. Come with me to Babylon, and I'll look after you. But if you don't want to, then don't come. Look, the whole country lies before you. Go and live wherever you please. He could have chosen to go to Babylon and comfort, and he didn't. He chose to stay behind in Judah, where he remained poor and unwanted. The Babylonians seemed to have a strategy in the days following conquest. The wealthy, the powerful, the educated, the landowners, they were either killed 
or they were brought back to Babylon to serve their new imperial masters. They left behind the poor, the lame, those already disenfranchised and powerless, and into their hands they gave land and the opportunity to work it. These people who had nothing to lose before the Babylonians came. Through the overthrow of their country come possibilities that they could never have known before. And so it's kind of like a Babylonian insurance policy against insurrection. These people were not likely to rise up and bite the hand that now feeds them. And over this ragtag remnant of Judah, the Babylonians appoint a man called Gedaliah as leader. He's a civil servant from a family long supportive to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah throws his lot in with him. And for a brief moment, there is hope that maybe some kind of order can come. The people work, the land bears fruit, and there is a good harvest. But sadly, it is not long before the baser human instincts rise again. Gedaliah is warned of a plot on his life, an early power struggle coming from a man called Ishmael, apparently of royal descent, who would have had designs on his power and maybe even a crown and a throne for himself. Gedaliah's friends see the danger and they offer to have Ishmael assassinated. In chapter 40, verse 15, Why should he take your life and cause all the Jews who are gathered around you to be scattered and the remnant of Judah to perish? Well, he did not heed the advice. And a few months later, Gedaliah and those close to him were slaughtered by Ishmael and his men, killed not in battle, but as they sat down for a meal together. Not only that, but the next day, a group of 80 volunteers showed up to lend a hand, and they too were brought inside and killed. Their bodies were thrown into the cistern at which Gedaliah's body lay at the bottom. This, by now, even more pitiful Israelite remnant, was taken captive briefly by Ishmael before Johanan, an army officer, and the man who had offered to take Ishmael out in the first place catches up with them. Some with Ishmael were killed, some escape, and the people are freed. But freed to what? They are so fearful now of the Babylonians. They are fearful that there are going to be indiscriminate reprisals after the death of Gedaliah, their appointed ruler. They are kingless, lawless, rudderless, and they don't know where to turn. I'd like to tell you that they turn to God. That with their vulnerable position and the power of God's judgment so fresh in their minds, that they would turn again in obedience to him. Alas, they did not. They inquired of Jeremiah where to go. And what they should do. And he told them. He told them to stay put. And stick it out. And it will go well with you. But they were more afraid of the Babylonians. Than of God. And they chose to flee to Egypt. Where they believed they were going to be beyond the reach. Of King Nebuchadnezzar. God's word to them in chapter 42 verse 21. I've told you today. But you still have not obeyed. The Lord your God. And all he sent me to tell you. So now be sure of this, you will die by the sword, famine, and plague in the place where you want to settle. God's word and messenger 
are ignored again. The people travel to Egypt, lessons forgotten or refused to be learnt, mistakes repeated, and their spiritual freefall continues when they get there. They blame their current troubles on the fact that they have neglected idol worship and begin wholeheartedly worshipping the pagan goddess, Queen of Heaven. They are quick to forget that idol worship and forgetting God has been the source of all of their problems in the first place. So if you're sitting there waiting patiently for the happy ending, it does not come. Some years later, Babylon rises up and quickly crushes Egypt. The exact fate of this troubled group, we are not told, but it will not have been the peaceful, secure future that they sought for themselves. And so now we come, as I said, to what is for me the elephant in the room. This is the Bible, the life-giving word of our loving God. Why so much bloodshed, suffering, and death? We're probably quite desensitized today with so many graphic stimuli competing for our attention. So it's quite easy to read about all this killing and not let it sink in. What it must have been like for the individuals, the fear, the physical pain, the loss of loved ones, home, nationhood, the loss of God and religion as their land and temple are smashed. And as I dwell in the judgment in Judah, what about the plague in Egypt where the firstborn are killed? Did those parents love their children any less than I love mine? Or God's instructions to Joshua and Caleb to lay waste all before them as they seek to gain possession of the promised land for the children of Israel? Those men charged with the killing, did it make them brutalized or broken? I'm a GP, that's my job, and one of my patients comes to see me because of an experience that he had 30 years ago. He was first on the scene to a young soldier who had been shot by the IRA. He quickly tried to get help for this man, and then he tried to give some first aid before realizing that that was futile, and he just cradled him in his arms as life ebbed away. Thirty years on, this personal encounter with violence and death makes him wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. He gets flashbacks and visual images and sounds which bring him instantly right back there to the scene. He's prone to bouts of depression and sometimes disabled by anxiety. It has affected his work. It's affected the kind of husband he is to his wife and the kind of daddy is to his kids. There will have been countless real lives affected in similar ways by the terrible events that we read about in chapters 37 to 44. So how do we deal with all of that in our Bible? How do we understand it? The good news is that in the next three minutes, I'm going to put forward some solid teaching that is going to bring you eternal peace on these issues and never cause you to doubt or question anything relating to them ever again. Do you believe that? No, I'm not going to do that. That's maybe uh, Christoph or David's job, but I suspect it might even be beyond them.
As a fellow member of the laity, all I can do is share with you how I cope with it. As I was thinking about what to say for this sermon, I was reminded of something from my childhood. I don't know what brought it up in conversation, but my mum shared a confidence about me with my wife, Jude. He was a terrible worrier when he was young, but then he became religious and all the worry stopped. It's not quite the language that I would have used, but there certainly is truth in it. In primary school, I was a worrier. I worried about the sort of thing that primary school-aged boys should worry about, like what I was going to get for my tea that night, whether I'd be picked for the rugby team, or what I might get for my birthday that year. But I remember also worrying about things that should never be in a child's horizon, about wars and nuclear bombs and the death of my parents, and how was I ever going to get my head around the thought of eternity? These things from time to time would have given me sleepless nights. But then in my early teens, when I was looking in the opposite direction and wandering away from God, he found me and introduced me for the first time in my life to the person of Jesus Christ. And I was instantly won over. I can't say that I chose to become a Christian because I was utterly convicted and compelled that it was the only option that was open to me. Here in Jesus was the blueprint showing me the best life that I could ever live. Here was an undeniable display of sacrificial love through his suffering and death for me. And here was a promise that I could cling to, that I am going on to prepare a place for you and that in my Father's house there are many rooms and your name is already on one of the doors. It was that childlike acceptance of these truths at the core of my being that stopped me being a warrior. And now, over 20 years on, my coping strategies have not become a whole lot more sophisticated. When faced with Bible passages like these, I've heard the apologetics, and I've read Searching Questions and Reason for God, and I've even attended the Faith Academy series here in church. They all help, and they're all good, but they never bring me to that point of absolute satisfaction and peace. There's usually a bit of a bad taste left in my mouth somewhere. Ultimately, the only thing I can keep coming back to is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate. Whatever trials, tribulation, and judgment we may read about in the Old Testament, the fruit of it all was Jesus. Even here when God's people were at rock bottom, absolute rock bottom. There are grace notes even in Jeremiah. Reminders of God's love, his plans, his hope for his people, a new covenant. Glimpses of Jesus who is to come. So does the end justify the means? I don't know. That's not for me to say. Nor am I saying don't search and don't ask questions because that's good. But for me, sometimes I just need to say that your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Jesus, the Alpha and Omega, he stands over the beginning, the end, and everything in between. 
and I need to throw myself again on Jesus, who has won my heart, and trust him. Friends, if there is a stumbling block for you, something that stops you committing to God for the first time, or something that stops you growing deeper in God, giving more of yourself to him, some issue like suffering or creation and science, maybe something that has happened to you personally, something in your past, or something that you're living through now, if you're waiting until you've got it all worked out and everything is sorted before really committing to Jesus Christ, please don't. Genesis, it's all about Jesus. Deuteronomy, it's all about Jesus. Jeremiah, it's all about Jesus. He is the center and the fundamental. Commit to him, and he can take care of everything else that is supplemental and peripheral. He's given you the blueprint for the best life that you can ever live. He's shown his great love in dying for you, and he's gone on ahead to prepare a place for you. He'll take you in his arms tonight, and he will bring you his peace. He'll take you just as you are. He might not leave you like that, but he'll take you just as you are tonight. Let's pray. I am persuaded, I do believe, that your salvation avails for me. Jesus, you call us, and you will not fail or leave us but you will keep us safely in your love. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.